0: We'll be looking at a bit of a longer passage today. It is all of Genesis chapter 7, and then continuing on into chapter 8, the first 19 verses. It is a longer passage, but it is a unified account of the flood that came on the earth in the days of Noah. And so I think it is best for us to look at it all together. So this is Genesis 7, 1 through eight nineteen. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. And the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven, each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female as God commanded Noah. It came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, And the windows of heaven were opened, and rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. And the very same day Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah two by two, of all flesh, and which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and the bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased, and the ark rested in the seventh month, and the seventeenth day of the month on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters decreased continually until the tenth month, In the tenth month on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. And God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, Every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we see your hand of judgment, heavy against the earth. That You wiped out all flesh from the earth by this flood, except for Noah and those who were with him. It is a sobering reality that points us towards your final judgments, which is to come. But it also points us to your deliverance and that you have preserved a people for your name that will be brought through judgment into life. I pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate the truth in this text to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps the most hated concept or the most hated sort of thing that a person can do in this day is judgment. We live in a world of radical autonomy. People are taught that they can do and believe whatever they would like. You can have whatever kind of life and lifestyle you choose to have. If you don't like your family, they're toxic, you can shun them, you can leave them behind. If you don't like your marriage, you can go get a no-fault divorce and try again, if you even bother to get married at all. If you don't like your work, just quit and find a new job, or the new trend, quiet, quit, continue to work or continue to show up while not doing your work or doing what's expected of you. If you don't like your body, there's all kinds of medicines and surgery available, If you don't like being male or female, it's claimed that you can change even that. If you don't like your religion, deconstruct it, question it, change it until you morph it into something more to your liking. In this world of radical autonomy, where we are told that we can and should be and do whatever we want, what is the cardinal sin, as culture would see it? What is the one thing you are not allowed to do? Let me put the question another way. What is the one Bible verse that everyone in our day now knows? It used to be that most people knew something like John 3.16, which I read earlier that succinctly explains the gospel. But now if I had to guess, the one verse that the most people know would be Matthew 7, one: Judge not, lest you be judged. Now this verse is known by most people out of context, Devoid of the real meaning that Jesus meant to communicate in it. People say, judge not, and what they really mean is, I'm going to do what I want, and you have to be okay with it. The problem is that there is a judgment that is coming, and it is inevitable. All will stand under God's final judgment one day. And further, in various times and ways in this age, God does pour out his judgment. In this world, on nations, on peoples, on families, and on individuals. To disregard judgment is to disregard the truth of God. Because God's judgment is an outworking of His holiness, His righteousness, His truth. People might avoid judgment for a time, but there will come a day when judgment can be avoided no longer. We return today after a lengthy time away to our study of the book of Genesis. What we saw the last time we were here at the beginning of chapter 6 was a world that in many ways was probably not all that different from ours. The people of God had become polluted by the things of the world. The covenant was being compromised as the descendants of Seth, the line that knew and worshiped God, intermarried and intermingled, and in many ways Came to resemble the line of Cain, those who rejected God and lived according to their own ways and their own desires. We saw God express something which, analogically to us, would look like exasperation when he said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So God has purposed to pour out his judgment but he does so even then in a way that is gracious. He gives a certain amount of time in which people might turn from their wickedness, but sadly they do not. But there was a notable exception. Back in Genesis 6-8, we saw that Noah found grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Though Noah himself was a sinner, There's nothing inherently virtuous in him. He was a man of faith. Through faith, he was found pleasing in the sight of God, perfect in his generations as a man who walked with God. And so as God purposed to pour out his judgment on the world, he also purposes to save a people for his name by the bringing of Noah and his family through this coming judgment. And so we saw that God instructed Noah to build an ark, a giant boat, a massive undertaking. And as we come to chapter 7, that work of building is done, as well as the time for God's restraint of his judgment. Judgment will be poured out. It will come in the form of this worldwide flood that will extinguish all life from the earth except that aboard the ark. We will look at this section of Scripture that we have read today in three points. First, we see preparation in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 7. We see the final steps taken by which Noah and those aboard the ark will be brought through this judgment. Second, we see purification in verses 17 through 24. We see the great judgment by which the evil on this earth is extinguished and cleansed. And then third and finally, we see preservation in the verses we read from chapter 8. Though judgment has been carried out on the whole earth, God remembers Noah and those with him and brings them to safety. So again, we have preparation, purification, and preservation. So first we will look at preparation in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 7. After Noah's work to collect the necessary resources and to build the ark, the time comes to put it to use. We find in verse <clears throat> we find in verse 6 that at the time of boarding the ark, Noah was 600 years old. Now the last time we had heard Noah's age in the genealogy of chapter 5, we read that Noah was 500 years old when he had begotten his son. So we are talking a span of roughly 100 years, that it took for Noah to build this ark. We cannot conceive of a single project taking 100 years. We can't because most of us won't even live to see 100. Just by statistics, by probability, the average life expectancy in the U.S., it's about 76 years. So we have no concept of even living 100 years, much less doing one single task that would take 100 years. But that is what Noah did. He spent 100 years doing this work that the Lord had given him to do. But the final act of this work is to enter the ark and to bid the world farewell. Now, this could not be an easy thing to do. Imagine knowing that you're going to board this boat and that by the time all is said and done, you and your family will be the only people on earth left alive. There is also an important statement that we see here in verse 1 where God tells them to come into the ark and he says, Because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. That is a statement that has been the source of some confusion and controversy. Some say that Noah had, by his hundred years of service, by the things he had done to this point, earned God's favor. That it was by his works that God had accepted him and that God will deliver him. But this is to misunderstand the situation. Noah was not a perfectly righteous man. Noah, like everyone after Adam, was a fallen sinner. In fact, we'll see after the flood some of the particular weaknesses of the flesh that Noah seemed to have. Noah is accounted as righteous But there's a question. How is Noah accounted righteous before God? Now, is it because he was perfect? That is impossible. Because man after the fall bears the guilt of Adam's sin and all the actual sins which proceed from it. Is it because God is accounting as righteous something less than perfectly righteous? I know of at least one scholar who takes that view that Noah was relatively righteous compared to the rest of the world. And so because of that, God recognized his righteousness as meritorious. But this is to violate God's justice and holiness. The only righteousness that is holy and justly rewarded is one that is perfect in every way. And Noah did not have that. So how might Noah be accounted as righteous? Well, John Calvin commenting on this verse helps us to understand He says, we must observe in the first place that he, God, loves men freely inasmuch as he finds nothing in them but what is worthy of hatred, since all men are born the children of wrath. In this respect, he adopts them to himself in Christ and justifies them by his mere mercy. After he has in this manner reconciled them unto himself, he also regenerates them by His Spirit to new life and righteousness. Hence flow good works, which must of necessity be pleasing to God Himself. Thus He not only loves the faithful, but also their works. We must again observe that since some fault always adheres to our works, it is not possible that they can be approved except as a matter of indulgence. The grace, therefore, of Christ, and not their own dignity or merit, is what gives worth, To our works. So, in other words, because Noah is justified by grace through faith, just as we are, his works are found acceptable to God by grace. God graciously in Christ looks upon us and accounts us as righteous because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us, credited to our accounts. Similarly, while our works are of no value or merit in themselves. Because we are graciously accounted as righteous in Christ, our good works, even as they are worked by God in us in our sanctification, are graciously accounted as righteous in God's sight. Christ washes not only our sinful souls of sin, he washes our imperfect works of sin and accounts them as righteous. All of this is by grace through faith so that we might never boast. Noah could never say that he deserved God's deliverance on any other basis than by the righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith alone. There are final preparations that must be made for Noah and his family to enter the ark. First, we see the gathering of the animals so that they could come aboard. We see seven of every clean animal. What we see here is that Noah already knows something, which is made much more clear in the Mosaic ceremonial law, the difference between clean animals, those who could be eaten and sacrificed, and the unclean animals, those that could not. Noah was to take seven of the clean animals so that he and his family might be prepared to obey God by eating what they should and by offering the proper sacrifices. They had an eye looking forward to worship and service of God. Now, it is not likely that Noah had to actually go and round up and collect all these animals. He, after all, only had seven days. The hand of God would have helped him. Otherwise, you could think of a situation, perhaps, where Noah was ready to bring in lions and bears. And what might happen to someone who tried to unwillingly bring lions and bears onto a boat. That's not going to go very well. No, God would have been with him. God would have moved to bring these animals to Noah and bring them aboard the ark. And then we see what is to come after these seven days where the animals are gathered. God says, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth. All living things that I have made. Now, 40 ends up being an important number, a number of frequent symbolism and significance in the Bible. In fact, it's a number often associated with periods of testing and of judgment. So, it was for 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness being judged for their sins. Only those would pass through of the next generation whom God purposed to save. But the most significant 40 days and 40 nights of all was when Jesus was in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, a temptation against which he prevailed. He would pass through that judgment. Here the earth will undergo the waters of judgment for 40 days and 40 nights, and it would be found wanting. None will pass through except those whom God had purposed to save. So Noah does all that God commands. We see beginning in verse 7 that the people and the animals that were supposed to enter the ark did. Entering in pairs according to God's purpose and plan. Again, they would have not likely done this on their own natural inclination. God worked through them to do it. And then we see after that in the following verses that the great flood comes. The heavens open and pour forth their rain. And water even burst forth from the deeps of the earth. And Noah and his family and all the animals took refuge in the ark to await the full execution of God's judgment on the earth. And this brings us to our second point. After this preparation, we come to purification in verses 17 through 24. We see that the flood was on the earth 40 days, And the waters lifted the ark. Now, you can remember from before just how big this thing was. It would be quite something for it to be lifted up by the waters up above the highest points of the earth. Now, some have tried to argue that this flood was merely a local or regional event, that it only affected the immediate area around Noah. It, like many things, is an attempt to try to accommodate modern naturalistic scientific theories to the Bible. They would take things like the use of the Hebrew word Eretz here, which means earth, but can also mean land, and they say, see, it means it was just in the land. It was just around Noah. But this interpretation doesn't work. For one thing, if the flood was only in a certain area, how would people react to it? How would people respond to it? Think about it, if you were in an area and it was flooding, what were you going to do? You're going to go to higher ground, you're going to go away from the flood, and eventually, if there is an end to the flood, you would find a way to escape it. So even if all of the people in the world, as some of these local flood proponents suggest, were confined to one area, at least some of them probably would have got away. Also, why would Noah take all the animals if the flood was just local or regional? Wouldn't there be populations of these animals other places to repopulate the earth? All of this to say, these efforts to synthesize the Bible with evolutionary theory and naturalistic scientific theories, they just don't work. This flood was a grand global supernatural calamity. If you've ever even been through a small flood that you've seen that's been in your area, you may find it surprising as I have just how much power moving water has and how quickly and severely it can alter and remake things. Not only would this flood bring death and judgment to those who had rebelled against God, in a very real way, this global flood would remake the world. It would have altered geography. It would have altered geology. It would have caused things like canyons and other features that might not have existed before to emerge. Many of the things that science now tries to attribute to millions or billions of years of slow erosion could be done in a short time in such a global catastrophe. We see that the waters rise to 15 cubits over the highest point on Earth. A cubit's roughly 18 inches. You could think of it as basically the length of your forearm. And so 15 of those over the highest mountains, over 20 feet over the highest mountains on the earth, covering everything. There's no way to account for this kind of flood in a naturalistic or materialistic perspective, there being that much water on the earth or that large of a flood. This was a supernatural act. It was God's direct hand of judgment. And God, by his waters of judgment, purified the earth of its wickedness. All mankind, besides Noah and his family and the other creatures with them on the ark, died. We see that even once the 40 days of rain and the fountains of the deep being opened are done... The water remains on the earth for another 150 days, that is five months. And it takes more months after that for the waters to recede and the land to dry enough that they could come out of the ark. It would be a long time to be on this ark with all these animals. After a time, one might begin to wonder, when is this going to end? Are we just going to stay on this ark forever or where is this going? Well, this brings us to our third and final point. After preparation and purification, we come to preservation in chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. In verse 8, we see that God remembered Noah. Now, this is analogical language to help us understand God. It's not as though God forgot Noah and then it suddenly occurred to him, Oh no, I need to help Noah. No, God always knew about Noah. God always purposed to deliver Noah and his family. This is a covenantal remembering. This is a remembering of favor. God showing again anew and afresh his grace towards Noah and his family. So God stops the flooding of the earth, the waters of the sky, and the waters from the ground. And then he causes a wind to make the flood recede. We don't know particularly what kind of wind this was. Again, it would have been another supernatural event, something we've never seen anything like and wouldn't be able to account for. But we see in the first five verses of chapter 8 an account of the entire time from the flood to when the ark rested on the land. On the ark, they recognize that they have stopped moving. They're stuck. And this is where we may begin to see what I mentioned before, some potential doubt, some potential anxiety. Okay, now what do we do? Noah and his family once walked on the earth. Would they ever do so again? Or would they continue separated from it? We see that once the ark rests on the mountain, Noah waits still another 40 days before he even opens the window and looks outside. Perhaps he's not yet sure if it's safe to look out since God has been pouring out his judgment outside the ark. Maybe he is overcome with sorrow, knowing that the world he knew is gone. But after these 40 days, after all these months of being sealed inside the ark, he does open the window. He sends out a raven, which flies around, can't find a place to land, can't find a place to stay, and so it comes back. He next sends out a dove, who also at first finds nothing. Then another week later, he tries again with the dove. This time the dove comes back with a freshly plucked olive leaf. That meant that somewhere there was land, and somewhere the trees have resumed living and growing. And then one more time, one week later, he sends the dove. It doesn't come back. It found a new new home where it was content to stay. So God has been faithful to bring his people and to bring his creatures through the calamity alive and back to the earth. Now in verse 13 and 14, we get some dates. We get some time markers. When you compare them to the ones we saw in chapter 7, we see that this whole ordeal of the flood took around a year. First the cover and then... Once that time comes, the covering of the ark is removed and they can see that there is again land. And then after nearly another two months, the land is dried up enough that they can come out. And so in verse 15, God gives the command that Noah and his family can come out with the animals and resume living on the earth, resume the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply and live on the earth, which for a time had been interrupted. And so we are at the end of the story of the flood. It was a great display of God's power, supernatural activity to judge and purify and remake the earth. But this is not merely an event in isolation. It is a picture of greater realities. First, this flood is a picture of our salvation through judgment. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22 corresponds these days of Noah and this passage through the waters of judgment to Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. It also corresponds this reality to baptism, an act by which we symbolically are passed through the waters of judgment. We are passed through death into resurrection as a sign and seal of the reality of the salvation and new life we have in Jesus Christ. The reality that we are united to Him in His death and burial and resurrection. Just as Noah and his family passed through death into life, Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless God-man, passed through death into life. Noah was a type of Christ. And those who were with him came out alive into new creation. So too, those who are united to Christ, those who by faith repent of their sins and trust in Christ for salvation are united to him such that they are brought through death with him into eternal life. But this flood is a picture of another reality. The reality of coming final judgment. I mentioned at the beginning today how people scoff and mock at the idea of judgment. How it is in the eyes of our society the greatest sin one can commit, the one thing you cannot do to judge. But final judgment, God's judgment is certain and it is inevitable. We see this in Christ's words in Matthew 24 verses 36 through 42 says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. The world thinks that it is fine. The world is just going about its business, living life however it wishes and thinking that it will do so forever. But there is coming a day. We don't know when, but Christ will return to the earth. Now, this passage has been frequently misunderstood by many people. One such example, our dispensationalist friends, they take this to mean there will be a pre tribulation rapture. The Christians will be taken out of the world, and then there will be a time of second chances for people to repent. They would say, You want to be the one taken and not the one left behind to live for the tribulation. But if you look at the text, that's not what's going on. In the days of Noah, Noah and his family went into the ark where they were protected, where they were safe. And then the tag te- and the text describes the wicked as those who were taken away. They were swept up into judgment, both for this life and the life to come. Noah and his family on the ark were the only ones left behind. But all of this to say, there is coming a great day of the Lord where Christ returns no longer as a Savior for the wicked, but as a judge. In fact, we will look more at Christ's judgment, Lord willing, this evening in John. But on that day of the Lord, there will be no second chances. Just as God destroyed the earth once by water, sweeping all of those who rebelled against Him into death and destruction, there comes another great and terrible day where God will destroy the earth by fire, sweeping away all of those who rebelled against Him into eternal condemnation. Only those will pass through that judgment who are united to Jesus Christ. Who by faith receive his word and rest upon him as he is offered in the gospel. And we don't know when this day is coming. It could be thousands more years from now. It could be tomorrow. But even if the day doesn't come tomorrow, none of us know how long we have in this life. The call of our text today, of the great calamity of the days of Noah, that prefigures this great calamity to come is that we must be ready. The gospel is freely offered today that those whom the Holy Spirit works faith in might repent of their sins and receive Jesus Christ for their righteousness and life. Just as Jesus Christ was the righteousness of Noah all those centuries ago, the same Christ can be the righteousness by which you will be brought through death and final judgment into life. But apart from Christ, you have the hope of nothing but death and destruction. The people in the days of Noah were going about their lives, marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking, going on about their lives, thinking they were fine and would continue to be fine. Maybe you think similarly. You think you'll just live your life the way you want And that's okay. That you'll never have to reckon with such great and terrible judgments. But, friend, apart from Christ, doom is certain. None will survive the judgment to come. And so, repent of your sins, trust in Christ, receive his gift of salvation today. And if you know Christ, recognize that the world around you is lost and dying in its sins, going about its life, not realizing even that anything is wrong. We all have the truth of the gospel. We have a message to take to this world, the only message by which they can escape this final judgment. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even as it. Teaches us difficult things, hard things about the coming reality of judgments, about the great judgment even that was poured out in the days of Noah. We know that this is a fearful thing. We know that there will come a time where all must be judged before your throne. But we thank you and praise you because we know the gospel that we have heard the gospel, that through Jesus Christ, your people will be brought through that judgment and into eternal life and salvation. I pray that all who are here today would know and believe and rest confidently in that gospel, even in a difficult and hostile world that goes its own way. But I pray also that we would remember our commission to the world, to take this gospel to it, that many might be saved and delivered from the wrath to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamelopc.com That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.